0: Um, so the, the text that I'm going to be um, preaching from today is just actually one verse from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, um, verse 22, about Joseph in the Old Testament. There's two Josephs, again, if you're new to the church, there's a New Testament Joseph who, um, of course, uh, was Mary's husband. We're not sure about him, here, we're talking about Old Testament Joseph, and he's referred to here in Hebrews 11. And this is one of the only times you hear Joseph mentioned in the New Testament. Hebrews 11:22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that your word would come empower this morning lord so you would come and meet us where we are lord come and reach us with the power of your word by your holy spirit i pray for those of us who are maybe sick of sitting down and just hearing things for the sake of it or we don't want to just hear things for the sake of it lord we pray that these words would be efficacious today they would make they would have effects in our lives and the lives of others that we know Just pray you come and be amongst us now in jesus name as we hear from your word amen so this is a very strange verse. If any of you know anything about Joseph's story, <laughs> many preachers over the years have wondered why the writers of the Hebrews would refer to this particular event as the thing that you say about Joseph. It's a very strange thing to say. Um, it, it's almost kind of like very officious sounding, almost kind of bureaucratic sounding. You know, he made mention of the Exodus and he gave some instructions concerning his bones. Joseph's life was quite an incredible thing. It took up a third of the book of Genesis, one third of the words in Genesis, the foundational book of the whole Bible, is about Joseph and his story. And we hear, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the Exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones. You kind of, if, you, if you were Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, you're not kind of looking at that going, we can make a musical out of this, I think. <laughs> Joseph and the amazing Technicolor instructions, I can see it now. You know, kind of got a kind of... Is, they're really good instructions. They were just kind of... They covered every angle. They were color-coded, of course. You know, they considered every stakeholder. The policies were in line. Brilliant instructions. Let's make a musical. All about these wonderful instructions. It's a really strange thing. And I think many people have wondered, what on earth is the writer <laughs> of the Hebrews doing focusing in on that? Again, Again, there's so much else in Hebrews 11. For those of you who know that wonderful chapter, um, which I think we've done series on before. At least you did a whole series, didn't you, Rich? On Hebrews um, and it's amazing to think that chapter, Hebrews 11, is kind of like the hall of fame of faith for the New Testament. There's all of these great heroes of faith. By faith, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. Abraham gets quite a lot of airtime in Hebrews 11. Joseph might you you know, might be forgiven for thinking Joseph might, might feel a bit hard done by. He's only got this random thing that he says, I mentioned the Exodus and I, I said something, some instructions about my bones. It's not kind of the most exciting thing that you could say if you wanted to say more things about... Joseph's life. You kind of almost imagine Abraham and Moses there at some committee table. Well, did he, I mean, he didn't cross the Red Sea, you know, he didn't he didn't kind of like, he wasn't willing to sacrifice his son, as far as we know. But he did say something about some bones, some instructions he gave. He mentioned the Exodus. It's so stick that in, that'll be that'll be fine. It's just a very strange thing to say. So, really, what I want to unpack for you this morning is why this is so interesting, why this is so powerful. Um, Actually, why the writer of the Hebrews, in one of the most famous passages on faith in the New Testament, is referring to this odd, quite odd event, which we don't really kind of have an easy way of relating to. So fundamentally, the most important thing to understand about what Joseph's doing here, this is Joseph at the end of his life. Let me quickly read to you Genesis 50, um, chapters 22 to 26. Then Joseph said to his brothers... Are we okay, by the way, on this? Do I need a, shall I I exit? Shall I go for the SOS strategy? I think I will. There you are. Seamless, it's like it never happened. Thank you, thanks Dan. Um, so where are we? We're in Genesis 50, um, right, right near where, where Joseph is, has died. He's actually, recently we, we've heard about Jacob's death, which I'll refer to in a moment as well. But firstly, here's Joseph. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, he promised, on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they had embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So this is Joseph saying, we are going and I am coming. We are going and I am coming. Okay, He's he's looking forward to what's going to happen to his people. And as we're going to unpack... That's a weird thing to do at this time in Israel's history. We see a complete direct contrast with this kind of idea of don't bury me here, take my, wait, for me, <laughs> wait a long time and my, take my bones with you when you go. If you look at how, what happened to Jacob when he died, we see that just in the same chapter, Genesis 50, from the beginning of that chapter, I'll read a portion of that, I don't know whether it will come up on the screen or not, Joseph threw himself on his father. This is when Jacob had just died. Remember after Jacob had given out all of his kind of different prophetic words to his sons. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Seventy days the Egyptians mourned for him. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Chariots and horsemen also went up with them. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of tad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him. There's a fascinating detail on what happens in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world where Israel happens to be, not because they plan to be there, but because of Joseph being taken there against his will in slavery, suddenly rising up to the kind of prominence that is, is almost the kind of thing that we are desperate for in, in the world as Christians. We're kind of wishing that we could have a Joseph at the kind of annals of power, being able to influence the world in some significant way. And we see that in, in Egypt, we see Joseph... So renowned and so recognized and so influential that even his father, when his father dies, we have 70 days of mourning for his father. What did Jacob do to Egypt? What does the average Egyptian really know about who Jacob is? Well, because of who Joseph is. And Joseph was seen as the savior of Egypt, really, and the bringer of such great prosperity after the, the famine and Joseph was there and because of Joseph's prophetic power, the prophetic revelations that God gave him that enabled him to, to act out in faith amazingly. So Joseph is seen as so significant that even his father is somehow worth 70 days of mourning and then a further seven days further on. So, so, so that the Canaanites, when they go to the place where Jacob's buried, they say, "Wow, the, the, the Egyptians have a kind of there's a unique kind of lament for them. There's a word that came up, Abel Mizraim, it says in verse 11, the mourning of the Egyptians, that place will be known as, because we recognize the Egyptians were mourning for Jacob, the father of Joseph. So what a ridiculous situation to think of that kind of faff, pomp and ceremony required for his father, that he is saying when he's going to die, I don't we want to be buried, make sure I'm not buried. Firstly, make sure I'm not buried in Egypt. I want you to take my bones up with you. It's not going to be like this. We're not going to have a ceremony like we had for the queen, okay, for me. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to get worse. And God is going to do something. If you were an average Israelite at that time, you would not necessarily be thinking that's what's going to happen. Because Joseph has the most, this is the high point for Israel in Egypt. I don't know how significant Joseph was. It was not only affluence and influence and prosperity, as I mentioned, Joseph, even when when the the chariot went past, people were instructed by Pharaoh to bow down to Joseph. Joseph was given Pharaoh's second chariot. And and, and when when Joseph came through, people would bow down. That is how significant it was for the Israelites. That's how renowned they were within Egypt, how revered and honored they were. And God did that. God did that in a unique, ridiculous way that no one could even possibly have imagined. If you were there with with Jacob in Canaan, you wouldn't have said, we could just go and plant ourselves at the right of the heart of the most powerful empire in the world, and we could basically have one of my sons raise up to become the prime minister of that country, and everyone honour him, and therefore everyone honouring Israel as a result. It's the most incredible thing for Israel's history at that time. So the idea that he could then say, God's going to save us from this place, take my bones with you, when you go, when God brings you up out of this place. It's an incredible thing to say, and not the kind of thing that most people would have thought. So in his life, he definitely showed, Joseph showed a kind of relentless faith in doing this, he, a kind of faith that was looking ahead, looking to things beyond how they seem right now, looking beyond how things might seem, whether you're doing well or not doing so well. But Joseph knew the purpose of the people of God, and he was willing to look beyond The current situation. Remember, in his life, Joseph had been constantly knocked back. He constantly had had tried to do what God wanted him to do, tried to honor God with whatever revelation he'd been given, and and he finds himself sold into slavery by his brothers, finds himself in Potiphar's house. He, He works himself up to being the kind of manager of the household, does really well, is really diligent, then gets kind of framed. Then has has to go to prison, works himself into a position of prosperity again in prison, has favor with the prison warden, sees revelation come again, and he brings that revelation to the cupbearer who forgets him, spends two years in prison, languishing in prison again, hard done by, continuously hard done by, poor Joseph. And then God finally brings him to this place of incredible prosperity. And you kind of would be thinking, well, that's the whole point, isn't it? It was all leading up to Joseph being superstar Joseph. Um, and that's it. But he's recognizing, no, there's something more. There's something that's more good. Our people are greater than what we think we've achieved here in Egypt. We may have achieved great things, but Joseph didn't get caught along the way. He didn't get caught in a kind of web of despair. Sometimes we can face these things when, 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 like, like those things that happened to Joseph constantly. think, I'm trying to do my best for God. I'm trying to make the good choices. I'm trying to follow you, Lord. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? Why do, why do things keep going wrong? Why do I keep making a, a New Year's resolution or make a new plan for the year? Molly and I were <laughs> laughing about this. For, we used to have a kind of, I don't know if you do this in your family, a kind of New Year review or an old year review. You look back on the last year and then and you kind of look ahead to the New Year. What do you want to achieve this year? What are, what are your prayers for this year? We were kind of laughing about last year, how ridiculous our thoughts were about what we could have expected in 2022. I don't know if you've had any of those years before where you kind of think, this is how I think this year is going to plan out and almost never, ever goes according to plan. You know, you, you make these plans and suddenly something comes, something else comes and then suddenly you're on a completely different trajectory to what you thought. It's not wrong to plan, but there's something about us being open to whatever God might throw at us or the world might throw at us and needing to respond to that. Joseph was willing and able to respond to the various curveballs that came his way. You know, for us, we, we set out last year, within, within a couple of weeks of us having our New Year chat, I was going down to visit my mother who was very unwell, but I didn't quite know the severity of how unwell she was. I got one of those you know, texts like, you really need to come down and see her now, uh, down in Brighton where I grew up. And it's just as I, it's weird how these things happen. It's just as I'd gotten back into the rhythm of the New Year. Just as I'm getting my plans sorted, just as the emails are coming in, everything's going on, suddenly this completely other thing you didn't have any allocation for in your life. You've just got to drop this and then you've got to go. And it, it, it kind of cat, you know catalyzed a whole different kind of year to the one that we expected. And, and it was, you know, lots of profound things happened through that, but it was a very, very sad time, very difficult time. And not the not the kind of thing we, we expected. I don't know what your year is going to look like this year. Our year last year did not look anything like we expected, and we've had many of those years. I'm sure you have too, because you just can't do, you can't plan how things are going to work. Joseph's life, his story, is a perfect example of how you would never plan the kind of purposes that God brings about. He does weird things in weird ways, but he brings about far better purposes than we could ever imagine. So Joseph showed relentless faith along the way, and one of the things that's helpful again about thinking about this sense of looking beyond our circumstances looking at the greater purpose of who God's people are is there's something apostolic about that so I don't know if you, apostolic just means kind of sent the sentness of the church so when you hear something about christ central or new frontiers if you're new to these kind of churches you might just think oh that's you know i don't really understand what that is that's some kind, that's corporate or something <laughs> that's the kind of corporate management we don't really need to think that much about actually the whole point of being in an apostolic community or family of churches is that you're thinking not just about your own situation, your own circumstances. You're drawn out, sometimes against your will. Sometimes you don't really have capacity to think about the church in Ukraine or something. I don't know if anyone was at the I didn't go to the one on Wednesday. There was a Zoom meeting on prayer, which I'm sad I missed. But it was so exciting, really helpful. Last year, I can remember right in the midst of our, one of our other curveballs we had last autumn, we had a really uncertain situation, still ongoing with our, our house. You're kind of feeling uprooted, feeling not quite sure what the future is going to hold. And going to one of these Christ Central prayer days and just hearing about other churches around the world who are going through far, far more difficult circumstances than we are, being persecuted or being challenged in all these different ways. And it gets your head up in a really helpful way. You can, you can almost get, get into a, a slump sometimes where you're just thinking about your own situation, how difficult it is. Actually, God wants to raise our vision. I remember Chris Chart, actually, when I I came home to him, I explained to him our situation, how challenging and stressful it was. And he he helpfully comes and goes, it's not stressful, it's an opportunity for faith. I don't know if you remember you said that or not. C-chart, 2022. (laughs) I like footnotes. It's an opportunity for faith. I know that, of of course, God wants to hear our requests. Of course, we can come to God and say, God, this is a really hard situation. And bring it to him and get others gathering around you. But there's something about being drawn out even of just your own situation as well. There's an opportunity for faith. Not just that God can do something in your own situation, but draw you out. Draw your vision up and see there's something beyond just this situation. So Joseph, again, in saying, my bones are not going to be buried in some grand ceremony. They're going to be taken up out of here. You keep hold of them in a box. Again, the ignominy of that. The thought that the great Joseph could just be stuck in a box somewhere, embalmed, yes, but stuck in a box, box of bones, and take them with you wherever you go. His hope was elsewhere. His hope was beyond where he currently was. He was thinking apostolically. He was thinking about the sentness of the people of God. They're going. They're, they're connected to something far greater than where they are right now. He says uh, later on in Hebrews 11 that these people were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God planned something better. Actually, not just better for them, but better for us, that so we're joined in with what they're doing. So Joseph was a, was a man of faith. He was also a great dreamer, as we know. He was a great dreamer, and his dreaming got him in trouble um, when he was younger, of course, with his brothers. But it's also this element of the bones, why he's telling us about the bones There's also something about that looking beyond, that dreaminess, which isn't just kind of flightiness, because we know Joseph isn't flighty. He's very, very good. He's actually quite a good administrator, we assume, because he was very, very well-rooted wherever he was. He didn't just say, right, I'm a dreamer. I'm a prophetic person. I'm a prophetic person, so I don't really have to care about how to handle everyday affairs. Joseph was very good. He got stuff done. He was very competent. At the same time, he had the prophetic vision of the people of God. He wasn't fooled by current circumstances. He didn't just look at the power around him and the influence he had and think this is how it's going to be forever. He could so, it's been so easy to be tempted to think that actually maybe, maybe the promised land thing, maybe actually this was it. Maybe in some way God was doing Maybe it was a spiritual promised land. Maybe there was some element of we can be here. Wouldn't God want us to be here in Egypt? It's the most powerful nation on earth. Isn't this a great place to be? Isn't Egypt so wonderful? Um, hasn't God done such a wonderful thing? And he had, but he saw beyond. He didn't forget the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were going to another land, actually a land that had already been um, marked out for them. And then we see where Joseph's dreaming and his vision, where it ultimately comes to fruition. In Exodus 1.8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Amazing situation, unthinkable, shocking. How, How, if you were there in Joseph's time, could you ever think anyone could forget Joseph? Think about what happened to Jacob. Joseph's dad, think of the 70 years of mourning and the extra week of mourning, and all the Egyptians and all the highest dignitaries in the land who went with him just for his father. But ultimately, Joseph is going to be forgotten. His influence was not going to last forever. It's not going to be something that continues and continues for all generations in Egypt. And he knew that. At the time, he knew that and had to pass that on to his people. Israel went from being a loved people, an honored, revered people, to a bit of a problem people, actually a bit of a scourge, a bit of a, let's get them out of the way, as has happened to Jewish people for most of their history. Let's cordon them off and eventually enslave them and then make the, the, the enslavement even worse and worse and worse. It's unthinkable for an Israelite in Joseph's time to think of what could happen a couple of generations later on. Loathed, hated, persecuted. So this is why, again, kind of working back to this phrase in Hebrews 11, At the end of his life, he made mention of the Exodus and gave the instructions concerning his bones. If we go to that phrase in the middle, he made mention of the Exodus. This wasn't a time for Exodus talk. This wasn't a time for thinking God's going to come and take us up and do something. This would have been a time for basking in the glory of all that great cultural engagement we've been doing, all that wonderful influence we've been having. So the mentioning of the Exodus, I feel like is quite significant, For us to think about in the West, in the church today, the kind of challenges that we've had. We stand on the shoulders of amazing cultural influence in the Western world. Amazing cultural influence. We've had so many different church expressions and denominations, whether Methodism or the Salvation Army, Anglicanism. There's so many things that are embedded in our culture. So many things that the way that they happen in our culture in the West is because of Christianity. We take so much for granted, and many non-Christians take so much for granted in in even our our legal and justice system because of Christianity. Many people don't realize this, and it's starting to be eroded, of course. You'll be aware of this. You'll be aware of watching things on your social media feeds or watching the news or watching the latest person who might have been fired or for saying the wrong thing. Things are changing. There was a time when Jesus was revered, as Joseph was revered in Egypt. Jesus has been revered in this land. And there's now coming a time where people are forgetting Jesus, where the name of Jesus is. new kings are arising, new influences in society are arising that do not know of Jesus or think they know of Jesus, but they don't. And so the challenge we have as Christians today is how do we live in this strange land in between where we know that there's loads of good stuff that's happened that we can still rely upon There's loads of great stuff about being a Christian in the West, it's kind of, but that's changing. We can see that changing every single day. Views that, moral views that were seen as completely uncontroversial just a decade ago are now immoral to hold. This is a moral view and now we've changed our moral so that if you express this view publicly, you might lose your job or you might be in trouble which were completely normal Christian morals, and the reason we believe them was because of Christianity. So as we see that rescinding of influence in our culture, it can be quite challenging for people. People can respond to it in all sorts of different ways. How can we get back to the way it was? How can we just get it back to getting more Christians in politics so that kind of just changes? It might not be that that's what God has for us. It might be that there is a time coming for Christians which is going to be difficult. And we know that this happens all around the world. We're just not used to it happening in the Western world. We're used to donating and praying from afar with our apostolic heads on maybe. But when it comes to our door, it's a lot more challenging. Words and definitions are changing. Expectations about how you use those words and definitions are changing. Some of you might have had these battles in your workplaces. about What your email sign-off line says or whether you wear a certain lanyard with certain colors on it. There's things that are just changing all the time, and Christians are in constantly in a challenging situation. But how do I deal with this? There's a woman you might have heard just before Christmas in December who was praying silently in her head outside an abortion clinic, and she got arrested because it made the people going into the clinic uncomfortable. She didn't pray out loud. She didn't protest. She wasn't dating them. But because she was praying, and it was known that she was praying in the confines of her head, that was seen as an act that could be seen as problematic. These are unthinkable things. These would be as unthinkable as making bricks without straw in Egypt when you're on Joseph's team. You don't do that to Joseph and his descendants. That's insane. Joseph is like the most revered, honored person. He, he's the reason Egypt was affluent and pros- prosperous when the famine came. But suddenly, 140 years later, you see horrendous change and so it's not, maybe it's not quite gotten to horrendous levels or anywhere near them for Christians in the West yet, but something's changing. You can feel it in the water. You can feel that things are changing. The tide can turn very quickly. And I just want to actually honour the fact that we... It's, so, it's such a blessing to be in a church where our elders honour the Word of God. I'm, it's, it's a really encouraging and reassuring thing. And I have no doubt that, bless and Grant and, um, and Ben... When they are ordained, as it were, or anointed uh, by the Spirit to be elders later this afternoon, are going to do the same thing. They are those who they are men who, who honor the word of God. And that's so reassuring in this time. Because we need churches in this land that are going to honor the word of God, that are going to remember the promise. They're not going to wishy-wash it away, reinterpret it in some other way so that it seems different to what we had heard it was previously. They're going to honour the promise, as Joseph did, said, no, I know it looks different right now, but I'm going to honour the promise that God gave to our people. And he's going to take us out of this land someday, and something else is going to happen, which you might not expect. And that requires sticking to what God has said. So I just want to challenge you. What What will you do, what could you do, if persecution came to your door? If, if the times change to such an extent and continue to change, to such an extent that you might be tempted to compromise in some way. Remember, we can, we can always find it easy to say we're not going to compromise in advance when things are kind of relaxed and it's in the abstract in some way. Remember Peter saying to Jesus, Matthew 26, 35, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. He says to Jesus, I didn't take long, I didn't take much, hands warmed round a fire, some people he's just met wondering whether he's with Jesus and disowns him, as Jesus said three times. It doesn't take long, it doesn't take much for compromise to kind of hit you from an angle you didn't expect. You can be kind of completely ready and the attack comes from a completely different way, a bit like the French in a Second World War, wasn't it? The Maginot Line, we've got this line of defence against the Nazis and they come through Belgium around the back and completely undo them. Things, completely, things can come in a different way, to you expect? You, you, you've got your defenses ready, and the enemy might come in a different way. That's what happened to Peter when he compromised, as it were. Now, thankfully, lovingly, Jesus restores him, and, and Peter goes on to become the kind of great leader we've been hearing about in Acts, living in faith. But in that moment, there was that, that compromise, which is so instructive to us today. So maybe the compromise might come. There'll be things where... Someone might say to you, you can still be a Christian. We're not saying you can't be a Christian. We're not saying to the woman outside the abortion clinic, she's not allowed to pray. She's just not allowed to stand there and pray in her head. Just just keep it quiet. Just keep it private. Your, your faith is private, so don't express it anywhere. It's when you express your faith, so that's what causes all the trouble. So please just be a Christian. We're, we're very culturally diverse and inclusive. Be a Christian. We certainly wouldn't want you to stop being a Christian. Just don't talk about it too much. Don't talk about it in the staff room. Don't leave that little flyer there to the carol service or whatever. It, just, it, it, it kind of causes problems. It's those little moments where it seems like you're not being persecuted, but you really are. And Christians need to stand up and actually be just confident in their faith. I know it's not easy. It's easy to stand and just say, oh, be confident in your faith. But we are the people who need to be able to do this for the sake of even those who don't know Jesus who are persecuting us. For the sake of those around us, we need to be those who push through and understand what the purposes of God really are for our life and for our people. So our hope, as with all of those in Hebrews 11, is in the heavenly city and not in the earthly city. I'm just looking at the time because that clock, as, I've, as Dan reminded me, is half past six, which means I can keep going forever. Does that? I think that probably means... Our hope is in the heavenly city, again Hebrews 11.10, as Abraham seeking the city with foundations, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So that The Joseph phrase we've been looking at in Hebrews 11 is kind of just one of many examples of people who are looking beyond their current circumstance and looking at what the people of God are going into, not kind of... Rasmatized by what's currently there and what, what the comfort it might be, the security that might be there, they're looking beyond in faith and saying, I don't, I don't see it right now, but, but I'm hoping for it and I'm sure of what I hope for and certain of what I don't see. That's what we need to have as the people of God to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So, we're going to need something of Joseph's faith. We need it to look beyond our circumstances, look beyond the challenges, and to make sure that when this persecution comes our way, which it is coming, that we respond in faith and not just in doubt, not by shrinking back, not by those who are kind of going to wilt away into the shadows and go, okay, let me keep it quiet. I'll I'll protect myself. I'll protect my family. I'll protect my job. We just need to be looking beyond, looking, looking to each other, looking to encourage and support each other, those who are making stands, and needing to stand up for their faith when these things come. Knowing that actually, whatever happens to you here, you're living for another city, you're living for another purpose than just what you have here. I remember Terry Virgo being asked, there was a a time in the 1990s when the church that I used to be part of in Brighton, before I was part of it, before I was a Christian, in the 90s, it was regularly getting a bit of airtime on the TV, on Channel 4 which was kind of because it was sort of the edgier thing to talk about. This Pentecostally, charismatic, happy-clappy church that's growing to hundreds and hundreds of people in a very secular city at a time when all of the established churches are kind of dwindling. And they would put Terry Virgo being interviewed, and they, they, they cut to like a canon, not quite bishop. Maybe it was a bishop, actually. The equivalent of like the Bishop of Brighton, who oversaw like 30 churches that were all dwindling. And he's kind of looking pretty down as luck, but also very kind of smug, looking, kind of, well, you know, these happy clap, you know, these kind of people, it's a very nice razzmatazz they've got going on. Yes, they've got 800 people, and we've got kind of 20 in a giant building, probably the size of this. But, you know, I think we have the, the, the kind of longer lasting, a so longer lasting, and maybe actually they, I expect that they'll probably fall away at some point soon. And maybe they haven't quite got the depths that we have, and you kind of think, do you, it's, is that what depth is worth? That you kind of have to kind of empty the pews entirely and the people who are there don't seem to really be living for it or speaking it out. I can remember, as a non-Christian growing up, seeing a giant, giant, brontosaurus-sized church in the middle of Brighton. And all I ever saw was, please give us money for the roof. <laughs> please give us money for the roof. We we're almost there. We need another £100,000. We need the money for the roof. Just asking the public... Please, public, you still revere Jesus, right? The church is a good thing, isn't it, in the culture? Isn't, isn't it a good idea to have a nice big church that hardly anyone goes to, that you only go to for midnight mass? Wouldn't you like to have a roof that doesn't leak? That's, kind of, that, that's the image that I saw of what Christianity meant to the world as a, as a child growing up. And then eventually coming to this church that was full of life, apostolic, connected to churches all around the world with people who are living by faith in all sorts of amazing situations it was so revolutionary to me. So you see what the church is supposed to be. It's the people of God together looking to a purpose, looking not to their city here, but to a heavenly city. And you find that when you live for the heavenly city, you're pretty good news for the city here as well. So when, when, the, when uh, Jeremiah tells the exiles in Israel, uh, from Israel to Babylon, seek the welfare of the city, for in, in the welfare of the city will be your welfare as well. There are times to put your roots down and to, to do a good job and to keep your job. I'm not saying go and lose your jobs, everyone. There's, there's, there's good, you will be good news for the city you're in, for the earthly city, when you live for the heavenly city. It doesn't mean you just exit and don't care about the everyday activities and the diligence that you need to show. But it means that you are ultimately living for something else. And Joseph shows us that paradox. He can achieve everything there is to achieve in the earthly city. No one is more influential as a person of God in an earthly city than Joseph was, I would say, in the entire Bible. And yet even he is saying, my bones belong elsewhere. They don't belong here. Got something else. It's in our DNA. What Terry Virgo said, by the way, on that interview was, if you haven't got any, when they said, why is your church growing? We don't understand. Why is your church growing? If you haven't any message, if you just want to share your doubts... Few people will bother the road, crossing the road, to hear you. They've got enough doubts of their own. They've got enough doubts of their own. Who else is going to be the people of faith if not us? Who else is going to go and proclaim who Jesus is to, this, to Sheffield if not us? And other churches who are, who are following him, who are standing on the word. God's given us a unique opportunity in this generation. We are those who are inheritors of Joseph's faith in this generation, in this place. We are the light bringers. We are the ones who are going to bring good news where good news is needed. Where there are people who are full of doubt, full of darkness, full of challenge and suffering in their life. They need to hear good news. And we are the ones to bring it to them. As Ben was saying uh, last week, we could be happy where we were. Philip was happy in Samaria, But he's been called to the wilderness road. What is he doing? He's he's just following God. He's following what God wants him to do. And, And God opens up something amazing in a really weird way that he would never have expected he's open to God's apostolic call to send. Finally, I want to just read a, given that I have no idea of the time, I'm going to close soon. I want to read a quote from Billy Graham. It's it's from a book by Billy Graham that I actually bought for my dad last year, who turned 71 last year, my dad did. And uh, it's kind of a riskily titled book to buy your dad on his 71st. It's called Nearing Home. I don't know if that's a little bit offensive to some of you. <laughs> but I kind of, so it seems like nearing home. Nearer than I am, maybe. I don't know, but, you know. So Nearing Home, the subtitle was Life, Faith, and Finishing Well. Life, Faith, and Finishing Well. It's Billy Graham wrote it at the age of 92, kind of reflecting on his old age in life. His wife had died. He's walking around the house. It's genuinely, you can see, it's kind of sad seeing him, you know, he's, he's genuinely grieving the loss of her, the objects that remind him of her in the house, but he's reflecting on what, how he lives his life in this time of life. And he's had this incredibly successful ministerial career, and he's thinking about what it looks like going forward. So let me read this quote. He says, growing old has been the greatest surprise of my life. Billy Graham, by the way, didn't think he would ever live past 50. He actually believed he would never live past 50 because of the pace of life when he was younger. So he was amazed that he lived to 99 in the end. Growing old has been the greatest surprise of my life. The young live for the here and now. Thinking ahead seems to be in the form of dreams that promise fairy tale endings. Though I'm nearing 93, it doesn't seem so long ago that I was one of those dreamers. Filled with great expectation. Planning a life that would satisfy my every desire. Since there were few things in life that I loved more than baseball. As a young man I dedicated myself to the sport. And hoped my passion for the game would lead me straight to the major leagues. My goal was simple. Stand at home plate. With bat in hand immersed in an important game. I often pictured myself hitting a big league. don't know how they do that. Grand slam. A big league grand slam into the stadium seats and hearing the crowd roar with thunder as I ran the bases nearing home. I never would have guessed what lay in store. The details are sketchy now, but I recall the first time I stood in an outdoor arena to preach the gospel. I'd been invited to hold an evangelistic citywide meeting in Louisiana when the local auditorium could not hold the crowds. The organizers had no choice but to move the event outside. Uncertain as to how people would feel about attending an evangelistic rally in a large arena, I was rather nervous. Then I thought about my boyhood dreams. Instead of bat in hand at home plate, I had what I now know is a much greater privilege. To stand behind a pulpit with Bible in hand, immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. I was not performing before fan-filled bleachers, but pronouncing the word of God to sin-filled hearts, searching for truth life indeed is full of surprises now all these years later i still enjoy watching a batter successfully cross the home plate but nothing thrills me more than the seeing the holy spirit at work in hearts as the gospel is carried into stadiums across the airwaves and around the world a baseball may be driven into the farthest corner of the largest stadium but the word of god travels to the farthest corners of the earth proclaiming the good news of salvation it still excites me just to think about the impact I just, I just invite the band to join us as I reflect on this quickly just how wonderful to think of that to think of Billy Graham Billy Graham is, he spoke to they say 215 million people he preached to over his lifetime 215 million people more live audiences than anyone in history. He had presidents of the United States asking him for help. He was kind of a chaplain to the most powerful people on earth. Very similar kind of parallel we see to Joseph. And at the age of 92, and he goes on to live to 99, we see him reflecting on the most important purpose in his life. The greatest achievements that he sees are obviously those beyond just that earthly success, even ministerial success, even success in the church as it were can actually become an earthly success. He's thinking beyond. He's saying, what is the impact of the word of God beyond what I do, beyond my life? So I just wanna to say to you, don't let doubt hold you back, okay, in, fact, in closing here. Don't let doubt hold you back. You can, things can come into your life, whatever stage of life you're at, whether you are in a nearing home stage of life, or whether you're in a young, dreaming stage of life, <clears throat> you're still connected to the same narrative of faith, this great story of faith that Joseph calls us to remember. And he called the Israelites to remember by carrying a box of bones around with them. For maybe 140 years, before Moses finally liberates the people from Egypt, a liberation they never saw coming, never thought they would need, and God delivers them. And he carries Joseph's bones with him when they leave in Exodus. And then later, when they finally get to the promised land, after 40 years in the wilderness, they're carrying Joseph's bones around them in that box, in the wilderness, for 40 years. And they finally get to the promised land, and they bury them at Shechem, the appointed place for Joseph and the inheritance for his sons. It's amazing that that box of bones went with Israel that long. And and the kind of amazing promise that it showed for them. We have that same promise in the gospel today. We know where we're going. We know that if we drop dead tomorrow, if we know Christ, we're going to be with him for all eternity. We're going to wake up with Christ in all his glory. And if you're someone who's been looking in on the church or you're not quite sure you've ever made a commitment, that can be you today. That can be your inheritance. That if you died today today, You could be with Christ if you accepted him in faith, what he did, what we've been singing about today, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ushering in an eternal purpose that goes beyond anything in this world. So if you want to pray that prayer this morning, I'd love to come and talk to you afterwards. Just lift yourself up to Christ. As we gather to worship now, just open yourself up to God. You may have never done that before. You may have never thought, oh, who is this God? You may have just been here temporarily. You may just be here. You don't even know why you're here. But actually God may have a purpose for you. And you can open yourself up to him and pray a prayer for his, him to reveal himself to you this morning.